Welcome to How for Change. This is the global speaker series where we talk to individuals from all walks of life about how they harness the power of storytelling for positive impact. Hi, I'm Jacques Telemac, your LA host. My name is Leisha Coleman. I'm your New York City host. Hi, my name is Ada Parry. Welcome to London. Everyone, hi, I'm Anna, and I'm going to share my 1432. But what is really like to be American? I'm American in spite of the fact that along the way, we lost the right to call ourselves that way. And we began being some sort of sub-America, a second-degree America, Latin America. Exoticized, dangerous, and at the same time, a great destination for vacation, or Instagram hashtags, we began to be the otherness of the myth of America. Separated by a wall, un muro, which is built from misrepresenting stereotypes, politics, and fear. I recognize my privilege in this equation. The color of my skin does not threaten political dogmatisms. Therefore, my otherness can be easily camouflaged, and I can be in both sides of the wall without receiving any threats for the color of my skin. What is identity outside of the boundaries set by race, class, gender, and nationality? Where are you from, I'm asked. And the minute my origin slips between my lips, the answer is met with suspicious eyes. But how? You're not brown. My identity gets hard to read as I don't instantly fit the preconceived notion of what a Latina looks like. Nonetheless, I open my mouth and the words that come out are those of someone who does not want to camouflage or pass by. The, wo the words are the ones of someone who grew up both in the southernmost of Latin America, Argentina, as in the northernmost, Mexico. I like to call myself Argentixcana, living in the United States. And it is in this displacement from south to north that I recognize and celebrate the diversity coexisting in our territories, and as well as witnessing other walls which are not as visible at first hand. Classism, xenophobia, and racism build narratives that undermine the richness of our Latinidad, while threatening the celebration of our cultural diversity. Sometimes it seems as we have believed our second-class citizen status, undermining our own ways of representing ourselves and not being able to create a narrative of our own. Our own narrative has been subjugated to the point of us being malinchistas and privileging and consuming a foreign identity as it is oftentimes considered better than ours. But I like to stand here, leave my 1432 as an uncamouflaged proud American, Latin American. Thank you. Hey, y'all. Um, I'm Herbert, and my 432 was cultivated at seven when I realized my daddy, who was the love of my life, would tell me to go play with the new toys he purchased. However, with the help of my grandmother, which we called Mami, he would sneak out and head back to his home. My 432 was cultivated at 11 when following my passion led me to being an ensemble member in the musical Grease. But that prompted the neighborhood boys to horizontally shake their hands at me, suck their teeth, and pray to God that I stare at them for more than a second so they could beat my faggoty ass. My 1432 was cultivated at 12 when my mother told me that the love of my life, my father, at 36, left his legacy for his loved ones to keep. And all I could do was learn the alto and tenor part to the opening number of Little Shop of Horrors. Then it was 15, when I was told by my peers on a Harvard speech trip that diction, articulation, professionalism made me an Oreo. And 17, when Ray told me he couldn't date me, though he appreciated my legs, my lips, and the other thing that shakes which my mama gave me. But most importantly, it was at 21, while in Iraq, in a U.S. Army uniform, with responsibilities, with training, that I was stripped of dignity after other male comrades believed that I was getting peaks in the shower and took justice into their own hands. But I survived. I survived passing police on the street. I survived the few white gay males pouting their lips, popping their tongues, snapping their fingers with the hey girl, just acknowledge my presence. I survived not being the ideal choice when a writer, director, or producer sees me, due to me just being. I survived. And at 31, this black, 
Creole, gay, New Orleans, Shrewsbury, creative, sensitive, feminine, bottom, veterans, 1432 is, I don't need your protection. I'm enough. Thank you. Hello, my name is Misha, and my 1432 is navigating this world as what society deems as a walking contradiction. So I am a professional model and actress, and I also have a mechanical engineering degree from Harvard and MIT. And um, this, I'm always met with surprise, no matter what. Um, whether I am in a business meeting, um, there's a, almost like a superpower in that you can navigate that world with the face of a model, and they assume that you, you aren't smart. Um, you end up getting those opportunities, but at the same time you question, why is it that an engineer needs to look a certain way? Why is it that a female engineer needs to look a certain way when we do not hold male engineers to that standard? As a, as a model and an actress, I'm often met with the question, okay, why is it that you've entered this world when you have an engineering degree? And I also wonder why is it that a creative cannot be intelligent? I also run into the fact that oftentimes we have a concept called tokenism and that runs rampant in our society. And I find that as a biracial person, I'm often deemed as not enough. I am not white enough, I am not black enough. I, there is not a place in which I can stand and be represented. However, I've come to realize that the nuances of this make, give me freedom, a freedom to choose my own path and to show that you don't, do not need to choose one way to be. You can be anything that you dream to be and you are the one who can decide your identity. Thank you. Hi, I'm Yimin. Um, my 1432 story is about how the society and people like to decide who I am for me. Um, I'm, so I'm East Asian, gay man, and 5'6", and then somehow the whole society automatically just, you know, say, you know, you're a bottom. And I'm like, okay, have you asked me first? Um, you know, according to my own experience, that's just uh, not true, uh, simply. Um, so... So there's a lot of assumptions that we make about people based on their racial identity. And also, I'm a fashion designer myself. So there have been, and I really uh, take inspiration from my own culture and my own heritage. And, you know, there have been multiple occasions. There are some people, uh, white people, and also Chinese people as well. They look at my work and see, oh, my God, your work is so Japanese. Man, is a compliment. And there's so much to unpack there. Um, well, first of all, I'm Chinese, and the second of all, <laughs> the, the idea that um, Japanese design, I mean, I do acknowledge the, uh, Japanese designers like Yoji Yamamoto and Reika Okubo make great contribution to, to taking up space for Asian designers in the fashion industry, but I think um, it's the assumption that Japanese design can step in for the rest of Asian culture. It's just very offensive to me. Um, and also... The idea that Chinese designer cannot take up their own space in the 21st century. Um, so those are the things I really actively work on. So yeah, that's my story. Hi everyone, I'm Anke. I am uh, originally from Germany, but I've been here for quite a while. Um, also always been fairly short. As a German, I am really short. In America, that's not necessarily the case. But as a German, I am the shortest in my family, except for my mom. She's tiny. Um, but I've always been really small. Um, as a kid, I was always the smallest in my class. I was always tiny. I was always thin. Um, I was a figure skater when I was a kid, which is pretty much as girly as you can get. I wore those you know, frilly little things. and. Um, jumped and, and all of that. It was pretty girly. Um, but at the same time, I, as a kid, I was always picked on by the boys. And um, As the shortest in class, tiniest in class, I kind of 
was a thing. Um, I'm also a social scientist, which is not known for, for our physical strength, right? We're not, we're not the most capable bunch. We read books for a living, which is ridiculous, but that's what we do. Um, and yet, I am actually really strong. I can carry really heavy boxes. I volunteer as a, at a food pantry, and I always carry the heaviest loads. And yet, people always refuse to give them to me. People always want to take them out of my hand. When I carry a heavy bag, people always come up and try to take it out of my hand. That is, men always come up and try to take them out of my hand. That's not chivalry. That's just denying a sort of my kind of physicalness uh, and reducing it to a pure sexual body, which is usually, you know, trying to be less capable, right, as, as men all the time. So damsel in distress. But that's not, that's not who I am. That's not how most people are. I'm from East Germany. Most of my, most women of my age, most women are a little older than I am, we carry things. We had to because that's just what we had to do. Um, and that's not possible. Or well, it's just denied when people try to take things out of my hand, when people do not want to walk through the doors that I hold open for them because that's not what women do. So my 1432 is that women are not just thin, sexualized, pretty bodies. We're not damsels in distress at all. I know that this is something that we've been, we have to talk about and we've been talking about as a society. But we should continue remembering that in the small things that we do. Like, maybe if women are okay carrying things, don't take them out of our hands. Because we can just do that, right? <laughs> That's my 1432. Thank you. Hello, guys. Uh, my name is George O'Kenny, and my 1432 is um, conceptions about refugees. Uh, I'm originally from South Sudan, and uh, my family had to leave the country when I was very young um, due to the Civil War. And um, it happened so quickly that I, at that age I barely even understood what was going on. Uh, we had to pack our stuff instantly and find refuge in a safe country. We were fortunate enough to go to Cairo, Egypt. Then after Egypt, we were accepted as refugees in the United States. And um, when you come to this country, you know, it's amazing. You have the freedom of speech. You're safe. But there's a misconception uh, in regards to, you know, immigrants here where you, um, we come here and we take people's job. And um, I'm going to tell you guys that um, those jobs that people think that uh, my parents came here and took were the jobs that nobody here wanted to do. And um, in regards to that, it's not by uh, choice that we came here. So I would like for a uh, majority of the people who have some sort of hate or um, negative feeling towards immigrants coming here, if my parents didn't step up to the plate to come here, uh, learn a new language, do the um, crappy job that nobody wants, uh, we probably would have been dead a long time. Uh, but thank God they came here and did the jobs that um, the people here didn't want to do. And from there, just still maintain the dignity and educate me and my siblings. Um, and also teach us that even though we're not in our country anymore, um, we still have to adapt to this new country that we're at, and we're fortunate to be here. So um, in regards to the people who look at, look at it in a bad way, um, we have came here and adapted to this country in so many ways. Uh, came here uh, speaking two other languages prior to English, and now I can say I'm probably, you know, uh, can speak English and communicate very well. And then also uh, those immigrant parents also taught me how to give back 
So in my spare time, I also like to give back to the communities here in this country. Um, so I just wanted to say that that was my one, four, three, two. Hello, everyone. Uh, my name is Sarah Belal, and I am a criminal defense attorney. I defend people on death row in Pakistan. Um, and my 1432 is the fact that um, people tend to think that Muslim countries and their criminal justice systems are archaic and unfair and you know, have unduly harsh punishments. But the reality is that criminal justice systems around the world are actually uh, mired in corruption, they're beholden to power, and they prey on the weakest and the most vulnerable uh, amongst us all. Um, so, you know, from the United States to all the way in Pakistan, um, there's no rich people on death row. Uh, who you do find on death row are those who are minorities, who are mentally ill, who are juveniles, who are victims of torture, uh, led to falsely confess. Um, and so um, I run a nonprofit in my country that defends people on death, Pakistanis on death row at home and abroad. Um, and we fight those systems of power, uh, whether they are here or uh, they're in any other country, um, to make the criminal justice system, uh, and this myth of the criminal justice system as being just and impartial, uh, evaporate and to demonstrate how much it is actually just about power and preying on the weakest. I always say this, there's no rich people on death row. Um, you have your stories in the United States uh, of rich people uh, getting away with murder, and uh, so does the rest of the world. And um, the criminal justice systems are usually a very unifying lens from within which to examine a society and its relationship to power and uh, the weakest. What's up? I'm uh, Jonas Youngbora. I work here in New York City. I'm from New York. Uh, I do entertainment direction. I put parties together. Uh, so my 1432, it's not going to be as heavy uh, as everybody else's here. Um, but for about a decade, um, I've watched a generation of women and men. I think actually we should start using women and men, not men and women. What do we think about that? I think that's kind of cool, right? Let's put the women before the men now. Women and men who have been increasingly more obsessed with the documentation and appearance of fun rather than actually having a good time. Now, we're all so obsessed with, let's take a picture of something. Let's, you know, instead of actually doing it. And social media and self-publication have led people to look for the lowest common denominator thing of the moment uh, instead of self-discovery. You know, people look to create stage photo opportunities uh, and then quantify their experiences based on digital interactions. So what I have to say to that is, let's get off our phones and connect with each other, okay? Not just in nightclubs, but just in everyday life because a human touch and a human connection, especially if you're trying to spread your message, you know, word of mouth is always going to be the most effective way of communication about what you want to say. So that's what I have to say today. Yelda Ali. I wonder if we can talk about stereotypes without talking about systems, without talking about propaganda, without talking about trauma. And even when I personally break a stereotype, it doesn't change the systems, it doesn't stop the flow of propaganda, it doesn't take my trauma away. I can't change that Trump is president and has threatened to wipe 10 million of my people off of the map, and I can't change that Fox News has a more prevalent narrative of what a woman from Afghanistan looks like than my own face. I can't change that when I was 15 years old, I would be shoved in lockers after 9-11 and called a terrorist in what was meant to be my new and safe home. You don't look like an Afghan is only something I hear 
from people who are not Afghan. She's an amazing female DJ. You should check her out. I still don't understand why my gender has anything to do with your recommendation. Oh, she has a women's organization, you know. You should watch what you say around her. I bet she protests a lot. What can we do about stereotypes? My one, four, three, two. We can give less space to media outlets to lead the narratives of humanity. We can not rely on presidents and priests to save us. We can, we must admit that we're all ignorant and be courageous enough to admit that. And I believe that the first place that we can learn is from one another. Um, thank you, everybody, for joining me. Hi, guys. I'm Amar. I'm going to be talking and sharing my journey with you about 1432 with Alicia. So please stick around. And I'm sure you guys have uh, many questions to ask these wonderful individuals who've decided to join us tonight. So please stick around so we can talk to them after this as well. Hello, everybody. So guys, tonight our guest is Amar Bilal. Amar is a fashion designer from Pakistan originally, and Amar runs a company called 1432. Now I want to point out to you guys that um, really we saw all these wonderful people talking and fashion was not a part of it. What we got was a really beautiful and rich range of individual narratives, of individual lives, and individual stories. Um, I don't know if that's how you typically associate the experience of fashion, but that is what Amal wants the world to have. Well, I mean, I, I guess it's beyond fashion, right? It's, um, I mean, I don't even know where to start from. I think fashion, my colleague Anka always says that, that even when you think you're not making a statement and you think you're being apolitical, you are making a statement to quote her. Um, so even taking a step back from fashion, when you... I. <laughs> Or maybe let me put it this way. I think in the, the world that we live in today, um, whatever we say through our work or even spoken word is documented so rigorously. Um, how could you not consider how it comes off, where it comes off, and the overall context of it? Um, so I, I personally don't understand or see a place for product design, language, fashion, uh, without a very strong purpose behind it. Mine happens to be 1432, which is about breaking stereotypes and talking about nuance and um, constantly being humbled by the fact uh, that there's so much we don't know. What we think we know is very, a lot of times, a history that's passed on. Um, and I think it's a time, going back to referencing Jonas, uh, a conversation, a conversation, just a conversation, a human conversation where more listening is practiced is so, so, so necessary. In design, too. Yeah, I, I definitely feel like, you know, in design, there's a, there's a, there has been a historical separation. I also work in design, and there's this sense where there's this product, and then there's the people, and there's not a lot of overlap. Um, our storytellers, are, they're all wearing your designs, these beautiful shoes, but you walk away with their stories you they're, walk away they're, with. They're not all my designs. I work with artisans and we collaborate on them. So I can't sit here and take credit for um, the beautiful people who actually make the shoes. One for three, two talks about not having this hierarchy being like, I'm the designer, you're the maker, you make what I say. Not doing it's, it the way it usually is. Yeah, so it's a bit of back and forth, as it should be. Right? Right, Anka? I'm going to get the stink eye from my friend if I don't say that. No, <laughs> that's a central theme. That's a central theme for you is what it's, is it's the my status quo? Yeah. I mean, really for you and for everyone here, that has been a theme that we've heard throughout this night. What is the status quo and how are you a living example to where that doesn't have to be the case? So let's talk about your story. Let's talk about how we got right here right now with these wonderful friends and these wonderful narratives. What brought you here to this point? Wow, it's, uh, it's about 20 U-turns and, you know, a three-point turn, I guess. Um, I just took my driving test three weeks ago. Let's clap for that, too. Let's clap for that, too. <laughs> Congratulations. I don't have a license, so you're ahead of me. I passed, by the way. I, I, had, to, I had to throw that in. 
Um, I had a Massachusetts driver's license about 20 years ago. They've changed a few things around, so I had to read the books again. <laughs> the, the, the gentleman who drove me to the test is sitting right there. You know. Thank you. Thank you very much. And we all... We, we, we almost got pulled over because right before the test started, I started driving anyway. And he's like, get out of the car, switch seats. You're not supposed to be driving now. So we pulled the Pakistani you moment. You don't follow the grain at all, do you? No. Oh. You know, talk about yellow line, right? We're always okay. on the wrong side of it. Um, so I've, I'm, I'm a professor of fashion and social entrepreneurship at Parsons. That is what I do. Um, and 1432 is my baby. It's my startup. I conceived of it. Um, about five years ago, and I've been working on it since then, and we just want, went online a year ago. Um, but how I ended up with 1432 and the shoe startup is, um, it, it kind of happened by itself. I, just like most Pakistani sons, went to business school. That's what, uh, that's how a design conversation goes with your dad. I mean, like, I want to study business, and they're like, you mean you're lazy? No, I want to study design. They're like, you're, you're lazy? I'm like, no, 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 I'm, I'm really into this. They're like, no, 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 you're going to do something that is worthwhile. It means business or the sciences. Um, but I started my company selling menswear straight out of business school. Um, I came from a privileged family, so I had access to do so. Um, that's, the f that's the first thing I say to a class of uh, young students studying entrepreneurship, entrepreneurial ability a lot of times starts from a place of privilege, right? Um, that sense of confidence that you can do this and you can sleep with that risk. We don't talk about it enough. We talk about all these scientific methods about how to be a fantastic entrepreneur, but we don't talk about how you stomach the risk um, that comes from a total place of privilege. Um, so I, st I went to business school, this is a short version of the story, and straight out of school, um, the industry that we gr students even now graduate with is obsessed with scale. So when you say that you want to be a musician or an artist or a fashion designer or a photographer, the question always is, well, how are you going to monetize it? How big are you going to be, right? And what is your five-year plan and 10-year plan? And it came on so heavy that I subscribed to that thinking for 10 years. So for 10 years, all I did was try to grow this menswear retail business in a country which is booming. We're a country of 200 million people. You can make a lot of money selling clothing um, that we pretty much don't need, but doing that. Um, so I, I drank the Kool-Aid for 10 years. And uh, lucky or unlucky, I was very lucky enough to have a certain amount of success and respect in the industry uh, early on in my career. Um, and why I say that was lucky was because it felt extremely empty. The, the more successful we got, the more I felt that I wasn't in touch with why I did this in the first place. And when you're a young aspiring artist or a designer in a very big industry, when something doesn't feel right, you don't necessarily know why it doesn't feel right. I face this with my students all the time. Your gut tells you, hey, this, you're not really enjoying this. You're doing this because everybody around you is saying, this is what the persona of a celebrity fashion designer is. But um, it didn't feel right. I felt quite empty and hollow because I didn't understand the purpose of just making loads and loads of black suits. Because um, that's what Pakistani men loved. Uh, <laughs> and I would say navy and they're like, oh, how can you? <laughs> and I'm like, it's just midnight navy. It's a super dark shade, you know? You turn the light a different way and you won't. And they're like, no, we know it's navy. <laughs> it's, anyway, so. <laughs> that brings back some memories. And you're having There's this, no Navy here, you're safe. Yeah. There's no Navy here. And this here. conversation, mind you, is happening with a gentleman who's 55 with a, you know, and is showing you a picture of a 20-year-old model and be like, this is what... Fa and I'm like, I, like, showing some, you the status quo, getting you to drink the Kool-Aid. Yeah, so um, at, at my 10th anniversary, um, we got nominated for Best Menswear, and I... I knew we were going to win. I just knew it because we'd, we'd been doing really well. Because everything was navy. Yes. <laughs> In fact, it was all so black. Um, <laughs> so we were completely subscribing to it. And um, I, I knew that if I don't disrupt my career in a way, um, I'm never going to have a second shot at figuring out what I need to say as an artist. And um, I applied to Parsons. I was the eldest student applying. I was a total wild card. Everybody else was in their 20s. I was in my 30s. And I thought I'd just take a vacation from my business and do that art degree that my dad wasn't keen on. 
Um, I didn't think I was going to get accepted. I was the first brown person in my program. They'd never had somebody from Pakistan, India, Bangladesh, or even Middle Eastern. Everybody was always European or East Asian. So when I was the first person who got accepted, I was like, I have to go. I don't know what this is going to be. So I came to Parsons for my two years in MFA. I almost flunked out of school. It was the hardest thing I did because everybody came from a design background and I was the industry guy. I didn't know how to draw. I just had these ideas in my head and I was constantly saying, how do we sell this? How do we merchandise this? How much quantity? What's your MOQ? And everybody's like, I mean, like get this guy out of class. Like, like, we want to talk about conceptual design. I was like, this, nobody's going to be able to make this. Nobody wears this. And they were like, uh, but... Um, so you had a different point of view in that, that aspect did, as well. I did, I did. But you know, it was, it, was a very, it was the most prolific experience that I had. And somewhere in the middle, um, something, something really unbelievable happened. I went back to Pakistan and I realized that all the people who used to call me the white boy in Pakistan, because I'm a fair-skinned Pakistani, um, I didn't interact with them as much and I tried to understand the 98% of my country, the backyard of my country, who I'd never interacted with, because constantly as a fashion brand, we were alluding to this idea of enormous wealth and success and marketing to the 1%. Um, and funnily enough, when I interacted with the backyard of my own country, I found my identity. I was like, wow, that's, you know, I've, I've been quite ignorant, <laughs> for lack of a better word. And I really enjoyed, I really enjoyed interacting with them, not because I was going through some savior complex, but just because for the first time in my mid-30s, I felt Pakistani, yeah. and not in a problematic way, and not in a complex way. It was quite simple. I was Pakistani, I was a different kind of Pakistani. Um, that moment, I took and I bought back into our studio at Parsons, and that's what I graduated with. I was like, there is such a misconception about what it means to be a Pakistani. And my friends have touched on that a little bit in terms of identity, right? It's not only happening to me, it happens. It's this idea of a one-dimensional understanding of everything we know. It's about pigeonholing, oversimplifying narratives, which need to be complex or binary or, or more, more than that. Um, that's kind of when I started thinking about 1432. It was... I was, I was going through a phase where everybody was like, give me the quick one, two, three, four on who you are and what your brand and what your collection, what your company is about. And I was like, but I don't want to give you my one, two, three, four because I'm a, I'm a one step forward and three step backwards. It's a story. And if you guys know Pakistani people, we love telling stories, right? There's no way that we can be succinct about anything. Everything is going to be a story. Um, I, so I started thinking about this concept of how about a fashion company because that's what I knew how to do as a craft, mm -hmm. is a company that disrupts every, tries to disrupt or add a nuance to all systems that we know. Um, it started with my identity, but then it also started with me saying, there's all this talk about social entrepreneurship and fashion. Mm -hmm. Everybody's talking about brands with impact. We're doing good. And then because I came from industry, I was like, wait a minute, this whole one for one thing, that's like less than your advertising cost. You gave product away. You buy one, you give one. Yeah. It's a good gesture, I get it. But you're obsessed with growing your business to a point where you're, gonna you're, you're growing faster than you're giving and it's getting more complicated. You're like dumping stuff on people, right? Yeah. That's a secondary thing. And you're channeling this idea of equal transaction or equality, but it's not equal because when you buy something for, let's say $100, and you give something away, the cost of that product is way less. It's if, if anything, it's 5 or 10%. So it's not really an equal transaction. To which my, everybody in the industry said, you're nuts. Why do you care? Just let it be. And I was like, no, if we're going to talk about equality, I think there's a higher standard. What if there was a company that told you how much money they made on every transaction and matched that dollar? to what, whatever cause they were affiliated with. And I was told that, as a business model, cannot survive, it cannot scale. Uh, That's, I was like, I'm gonna one, three, two the shit out of that. <laughs> so it took me four years. So you are, there's really disruption and going against the grain in your DNA. I mean, I feel like even in a space that is trying to, you know, go against the, go against the grain, you're going against the grain there too. I guess success doesn't sit well with me. Every time I get too comfortable, I want to move. 
No, I, I think, um, I mean, again, I, I, I'm very careful not to attribute all of, all of this to myself. I'm sitting here saying all these things to me. There have been key people during that time who I conversed with and I listened. You know, it's saying, hey, I might have grown up in a system believing this or knowing this. Acknowledging the household that we come from and the privileged thinking that we come from and saying, they might, taking a crack at that is some of the hard, it's, it's a very hard thing because you're dismantling what your parents told you, what your culture told you, the history that we read in schools. So I've had to practice listening uh, when I come across people who have experiences that are not mine and saying, okay, I've read about your experience, but you've experienced this, so tell me. And I'm really, really going to listen, and we might disagree. So m my abilities and disruption are a byproduct of who I've interacted with through all those years. Um, and what I, what I don't speak about much in an audience like this is that during the time when I was discovering 1432, this is the end of the Obama years where um, there is things that were going on in the backyard of Pakistan when I went there that nobody was speaking about, right? We were being like, everything is fantastic. Um, and my sister, who's a human rights lawyer, she, um, she, she put me in touch with a lot of these people. Um, and what that did was also that I, I've understood that sometimes in a format like this, when we have 20 minutes to have a conversation, I can't go into the intricacies of Pakistani culture and the political atmosphere there. Henceforth, knowing that, I'm not going to throw that out there and explain that, how that translates into design. So right, right. looking at the context of what something is going to come off in relevance to time is something also very important. Right, but right? You, de you definitely have a very strong story. And something that um, is really important to the mission of How for Change is how storytelling is used for social good. So given that one, four, three, two is juggling so many nuanced conversations, um, how do you manage that story? What story are you pushing forward? How are you differentiating yourself at a time when you know, socially conscious and ethically um, sound brands are really booming out there? Uh, wow. Um, one, it would be nice to have a bigger budget to tell the story. Uh, <laughs> Money makes the world go round. Yeah. Um, I mean, look, there's, there's no surprise to this. When you decide to give half your money away on every transaction, you don't have money for a sexy PR agency um, or big marketing budgets that push for ads. We rely on what Jonas was talking about and in events like this, patrons, people actually wearing our shoes and talking about them. It's a slow growth. We're not into this for a five-year business plan where we sell it. I, this is a commitment for mine in life. Um, that's what I'm going to do because if 1432 can exist as a company this way and we can be at really small and very lean, then I don't think some of the big guns have an excuse not to give you that kind of transparency. If this baby company by a professor can say, when you buy a shoe, you can scan the QR code and it's going to take you to a page to the name of the artisan and how much they were paid for that specific shoe in real time to the cent, why can't I won't say a name, but why can't a lot of people right. do that? So right. it's, it's the, look at it this way. We're at the, this is storytelling, and it's right now fashion is where the food industry was um, maybe 15 years ago. Did you ever think you were going to be told how many calories a Big Mac has? They never wanted to tell you, but we asked for it. And now they're there. It sounds like it was an oxymoron back then, right? So right now, knowing where something is made, made in Pakistan or made in Italy, it doesn't mean anything. Or made in China, it doesn't mean anything. It's like knowing the total calories but having no idea of the ingredients. Our storytelling is based on transparency. It's based on transparency and it's based on me not telling other people's stories. We try our best not to speak for a community. And if if geography intends it so that I'm having to speak for a community, then I'm going to try my best to dismantle that privilege so you guys can have access to the community that I happen to be speaking for sitting here. So part two things, storytelling, with an extremely high level of transparency, mm. access, and uh, call it truth. You know? so talk more about um, some of these people who are helping tell a story, um, the community that's involved, the QR code you mentioned, the artisan, yeah. um, because we don't have physical access to those people, although their spirit makes this whole thing possible. Yeah. Right? Um, 
<laughs> I, I miss them. Um, yeah. We're talking about them. So we, we have seven wonderful individuals who work in 1432 that get paid um, actually almost 20% higher than the livable wage every month. But on top of that, every time we sell a shoe, a chunk of the profits goes to them. So we match every dollar that I would make, which I haven't many, made many yet because we're putting money into the company so we, we can get the word out. But they get a profit in real time. Um, <laughs> So actually, this is a nice way to talk about them. The, when we started developing this shoe, the shoe that I'm wearing has no left or right foot. And it takes the shape of your foot as you wear the shoe. Um, and the word for shoes in Pakistan, I think in India is also, is juti, J-U-T-T-I. And the irony is that juti as a word did not always mean shoes. Back in the day, hundreds of years ago, it actually meant this no left, no right slipper. But everybody was wearing it so much so that it like Kleenex, it just became the word for all shoes. Now the irony is in the 21st century, we're using the word, but nobody wears the shoes anymore because the shoes weren't updated to walk on concrete roads. They just stayed as indoor slippers and now they've become costume. That is how craft dies. Craft dies when we make it exotic and costume and it doesn't find its place in our everyday life. It doesn't have a proper story for the modern times. Right, and it doesn't have a proper purpose because we're so busy calling it craft and exotifying it and over-decorating it. So when I went to Pakistan and they were all, they were, this is a shoe that is part of our heritage, um, I said, guys, we might need to update how it's made. What if we update the material so it finds a place in homes beyond Pakistan? How much do you care about it looking Pakistani? And honestly, the craftspeople are like, we care about sustaining this craft, living on. We don't care how Pakistani looks because you guys can make it look super Pakistani and if that translates it into being costume that you wear once a year on some trip. Halloween or something like that. Yeah. yeah. They're like, that's not doing us any good. So uh, we worked with a company that makes sneakers to put in their materials and their technology into this handmade Pakistani shoe. The other part is all the old cobblers, which are predominantly men, said, we're not going to make it this way. We've made it this way for 400 years. We're not going to change it up. So I was like, that's just great. And then lo and behold, their wives are like, well, why don't we give it a shot? We're like, please. Um, and I'm proud to say, whenever I do a a focus group and I said, when I say the word cobbler, what gender do you think of? Most of the time, majority of people think a man. And when you say the word seamstress or somebody who sews, you might get an even split. And it's because the craft of cobbling wasn't passed on to women because cobblers as a, as a craft were paid more. That's why we associate the male gender with cobbling. So um, these wonderful women took up the challenge, started making our shoes, and now they make more money than their husbands. Let's clap for those ladies, yeah? Let's clap for those ladies. Um, I love that. And uh, for Pakistan, it's, it's, it's wonderful. We have, now we don't want to hire the guys anymore. <laughs> now they're like, can we come and learn the shoes? I was like, ask your wife. <laughs> is, that unusual, is that unusual for women to be paid so well and to take on this skill in Pakistan? Uh, I think it depends on profession. I, I, I think that it's, I can't make a general statement about the whole country because it's nuanced depending on what we're doing. So, um, but I, I can say globally, I, there are definitely more male cobblers globally, not in Pakistan, than there are women. Right. So, yeah. So I can tell from your story that um, your personal heritage um, plays a huge part in, um, I'll say, helping you fill that hole that was missing um, for so many years that you couldn't find in business school. Um, do you think that that's a requirement for somebody to get involved in, in issues that they care about, to have a, a personal story to go with it? Um, I think... I think it, it, I say, I answer this question for my students all the time. I find a lot of times now, we've, the whole idea of social impact entrepreneurship has trended so much and even sustainable practices or anything which is, has something to do with the environment. I find a lot of people in the space turning out products or tick marking that box just for the sake of it because they think it sells more product. Um, so I wanna, I wanna call that out and say, listen, if you're at a place where you don't care or don't speak to or don't identify with a specific um, political issue or an issue within society or maybe 
figure out what you really care about because I think it does shine through and it seems hollow and you might run with it for a really long time but I think it catches up on you. We live in a time where you are going to be get where you're going to get called out. So I won't I won't say that social impact or impact driven storytelling is the you know is the, is the necessity. I think it's important. I don't see any other way around it. But I would premise that by saying figure out something that you care about beyond yourself. Um, I, I wish I had a slide, but an equation that I always show to my, to my students is that if when somebody asks you about your, your company as a designer, right? Why do you design? Or what's different about your label or your company? And if you, or somebody asks you, why do you do what you do? And if you start that answer by the word I, you need to roll back and start again. Because chances are your company is very much only about you and it stays about you and it is you. But if you think about how it interacts with other people and you start the answer with we, I think that's the first starting point where you're thinking about how your company speaks to individuals which are beyond your own personal experience. And then you find something within your experience that relates to a diverse set of individuals. We all have yeah. stories. Yeah. Our ability to tell them very effectively comes from a sense of empathy, humility, listening, a bunch of these things. It's not about this gift of the gab. I think there's always something that will connect, you know, even yeah. though there's different backgrounds. Um, I personally felt lots of commonality with all the different things that they were saying and even you were saying. Mm -hmm. It's because we're all people, y'all. <laughs> <laughs> so you, you mentioned that um, because you come from a, a privileged background um, that made the task of um, dealing with the risk wasn't quite as hard for you. Um, I did not come from a privileged background for me. It was very much a fight to the top. So when you said that, um, I had a very visceral kind of memory experience of dealing with that risk of um, the thought of leaving what you know um, in search of something you can't even see. Yeah. Um, so for people out there who want to push past, push past what they're in, they have a vision, but they might not have resources, they might not have privileges, they maybe they're a refugee, maybe they're disabled, they're, they're of some status that um, makes it difficult for them. What would you say to them? I think... <laughs> It's hard. For, I mean, I'm, I'm going to comment on something that I haven't experienced. So I do think that if you're, if you're trying to make something happen, I mean, this is a cliche thing to say, it takes time and it takes a certain amount of perseverance and belief. Um, I think I did come from a privileged background, but all the businesses that I wanted to start completely made life quite difficult for me, right? I was in Pakistan, but I didn't want to do Pakistani clothing. So I wanted to do a Western format of menswear, which was really difficult. I wanted to do denim. Um, and then when that kicked off, I'm, I'm here and I'm doing this equal share startup where we're always really scrounging for pennies to get the message out, right? Um, but when I talk about privilege, it's the privilege, my perseverance and my ability to mitigate risk comes from that privilege because I saw people in the household doing that. I think in my classroom as a professor, I have seen students who haven't come for privilege, who've come from this innate sense of belief and passion about what they want to say. And I think that eventually translates into them having the, the, the stomach to, to sleep on those nights where they don't know what's gonna happen to their artistic endeavor or their business the next day, right? So my answer to your question is the only an anecdote to not having privilege is uh, a belief system that's beyond you. Because I, I see many people getting tired of their own self and their own art. What's hard to get tired of is a few moments where you've impacted or interacted with somebody else which is truly, truly meaningful beyond yourself. That is something that goes that's, way That's beyond. forever, that's forever. Yeah. So not to, again, sound like a savior, but if you happen to impact. So uh, I'll tell you what gets me through the days where my privilege run out, because my father went bankrupt when I was 25, so I had to kind of just do this on my own yeah. since then. But when I graduated from my master's degree and I stood up on stage, I was a valedictorian, I, I made a promise to the audience. I said, I'm the first, but I promise you I won't be the last. And because I'm an American citizen, I was born here, I was able to get a loan from the US government to pay for my graduate program. And I was like, this is not the face of art education. 
everybody who can afford this degree. So I started working tire tirelessly to raise money for an artist from Pakistan who probably can't afford a graduate degree in Parsons. And there was a girl from a village of 300 people who had never read Vogue, who doesn't know who Armani or Balenciaga or Gucci is, who was the most prolific artist. She just had it. And I interacted with her when I was teaching these workshops for free in Pakistan. And I was like, you really deserve to go for higher education in New York. And she's like, I haven't been to Dubai. Like, what the hell are you talking about? And I was like, no, this, you, re you deserve to be there, not me. And uh, long story short, we raised $200,000 for her. She was the first Pakistani after me that got accepted. And she's number one in her class. Let's clap for that girl, y'all. Uh, and, uh, and she's showing in New York Fashion Week in September. She just graduated in May. And hers is a story. That's the first one for three sisters. So before the shoes, before anything, that's the first thing I did. So when I did that, and wherever she goes, she's like, I'm a product of 1432 when people get equal amounts of access. The story like that, all the privilege can run out. I can live in that for two life, lifetimes. Yeah. yeah, stuff like that. I mean, I feel like the world needs so much of that right now. We need to see examples of people going beyond themselves, extending a hand to other people to help them up. That's beautiful. Thank you. So um, anything you want to share, plug with us, get us excited about, get us to follow. Um, now's your, the time. Tell your friends about us. We rely on these real person interactions. We uh, have a fantastic product that feels really good. Try the shoes on. but. Talk to my friends. They are beautiful, beautiful people who've taken the time out to be here. They're beautiful souls and who are doing such amazing work in their own right. I feel horrible I've taken the limelight out of them. But talk to them. They're great people. All right. Well, thank you, Omar. And thank you, everyone, for being here. Um, at the end of all of these talks, we always take a moment to come together um, and just acknowledge that we are sick of the crazy. We want to see a better world. So on the count of three, I want you guys to all give me a good wolf howl together because we are howling for a better future. So are you ready? One, two, three. Ow! <laughs> Thank you. Thank you all for coming. Thank you. That's all we have time for today. Join us next time for How for Change. And until then, follow us on social media at How for Change. Download the How for Change app, both for iOS and Android, and show us how you're making a difference in the world. Thank you.